you're getting kind of quiet. You're really in it now, aren't you? It's a little bit like being in the the middle of a large body of water. The shore you left is out of sight. And the one to which you intend to land is not close. (laughs) So it's a good thing you know how to float. You do, you know, know how to float. A couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk on wise effort. And I touched on a number of things in that, including the four great endeavors. And I touched on the necessity for there to be commitment, full commitment to the the process, integrity of effort. And I use this word virya, which is a kind of uh, focused effort that has almost a heroic quality to it, a committed kind of energy. And I want to talk more about effort tonight, but before I get too far into that, uh, I have to say that when you talk about effort, especially to uh, a group of people who are mostly living in Western culture, it's a good idea to be a little bit nuanced about it. Because often when we talk about effort, the way people hear it is, try harder, try harder, strive harder, really bear down. And that's not exactly what's being said. There's a little more subtlety in it than that. Now, the Buddha himself, of course, was someone who had to strive very hard to awaken. And in fact, the stories that are told about his past lives talk about eons where he practiced with this intention to awaken for the sake of all beings. And even in the life where he finally did make his breakthrough into complete understanding, he still had to make a lot, a lot of effort. And in fact, he made so much effort of a particular kind that he nearly killed himself. If you are familiar with the story of his process of uh, working towards enlightenment, you'll remember that he went through a period of years where he practiced very intense austerities, where he pushed the body and mind to its limits with this idea that if he, he punished the flesh, that somehow um, something good would emerge from it. And he says of his own efforts in that regard that nobody will ever be able to say they made more effort than I did. And he basically nearly starved himself to death, came very close to it, and was rescued at the last minute by a young woman who offered him uh, a gift of what's sometimes described as rice milk, which he took 
to strengthen his body to actually go ahead and make the last push when he was in a more balanced state. So the Buddha himself has has rejected this understanding that uh, effort is all about hard, 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 trying with no nuance. So there's nuance, and that's a good part of what I'm going to talk about tonight. So being a human being is a rather confusing thing. It's a confusing situation that we come into. We know when we do some things instead of others that we can influence what happens next. And just some common examples of this, we know, for instance, if we stay away from foods that give us indigestion, we probably won't get indigestion. We know if we keep up with our homework in school, then we'll probably get better marks than if we never crack a book. We know that if we do our yogi job on time, then we probably won't get a note from the office. So we have a sense of cause and effect. And we have a sense of agency, of being able to make things happen. But it only works sometimes. But because it only works sometimes, it's intermittently reinforced. And there's a particular thing that happens when things are intermittently reinforced for us biological beings. And a classic example of this is seen in particular experiments where scientists were working with mice No mice were harmed in the course of this experiment. So they were were trying to figure out some things about motivation and what mice could learn about. And so the experiment involved putting the mice in a situation where if they pressed a lever, then a food pellet would come down the chute. And so, yes, indeed, they found that over time the mice could learn to associate hitting the lever with getting a food pellet. And then they would, you know, like to do that, like to get the food. So then they modified the experiment and they wanted to take a look at what would happen if the mice only got the pellet sometimes. So sometimes when they hit the lever, it'd roll down, sometimes it wouldn't. And they found that what happened was the mice really went nuts about it. (laughs) They were hitting the lever all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time in hopes of getting a pellet. And in fact, they were at it much more than when they knew they would get a pellet every single time. Intermittent reinforcement. And we human beings, too, have overgeneralized this idea about control. 
we've got a kind of biological confusion about pleasant and unpleasant too. There is a significant correlation between simple things that are pleasant and our survival. So for instance, we come out when we're born and the baby is kind of looking around and responsive to the offer of food, you know, whether it's the mother's breast or a bottle. There's kind of a pleasant reaction on a very primitive level to that and a latching on to receive what's nourishment. And you could say, too, that there is a loose association between uh, things that are unpleasant and things that might be better not to experience, like slamming your finger in a door or something. Yeah, it's a sign, it's a, a signal. But the problem is we lack fine-tuning in this particular area. And intermittent reinforcement causes us to try to secure our supply of pleasant to only get the good stuff and to make the unpleasant go away. In other words, to try to secure our world in a way that has easy access or ongoing access to pleasantness and closes out unpleasantness as much as possible and which basically goes offline or pays no attention to what's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. I mean, let's face it, if we could find a way to string together one pleasant experience after another so that we would never have to experience neutrality, or unpleasantness. We'd go for it, wouldn't we? And sometimes it seems like like we can happen. And the intermittent reinforcement is the worst because it really stirs up the mind and gets it going just like the mice. We try and try and try and try and try and try to get it, which is another way of saying this is the pattern of craving. And it has its roots in a kind of ignorance that doesn't see it's impossible to only get what we want. It's impossible, but we don't see it. And this ignorance also doesn't see that even if we did get what we want, it wouldn't have the effect that we're seeking. It really wouldn't fix the underlying Suffering. It doesn't see the three characteristics of all conditioned things. It doesn't see the impermanence. It doesn't see the suffering nature of things in large part because things are impermanent. And it doesn't see that the whole show is not under the control of master control, otherwise known as I. So we've got this pattern of going after the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, and bypassing connection with what's neither. So this is a way to say that our habitual consciousness has in it these distortions of craving, aversion, and non-connection. 
So when these are present, when they're predominant in the mind stream, we already are working really hard. We're working really, really hard. So what are we trying to do? So to put it in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is edit, shape, revise, remake, reform, secure, hold on to, pursue, capture, improve, own, control, ignore, shut out, redirect, and otherwise manage things. So talk about fatiguing effort. What could be more exhausting than this? So this is a habit, it's a mind habit. So if you're going to put it another way, it's like we're a bunch of control freaks. So there wouldn't be a problem with this kind of working hard or trying really hard in the way that I just described if it actually worked. If it actually supported our happiness and well-being, okay. But the problem is that it doesn't work because it's not our preferences that determine what happens, what we experience. Things manifest the way they do because of causes and conditions, not our will. So this attempting to oversteer to make the present moment be the way that we want it to be is futile and it's stressful as well. So it's got a couple of fatal defects. We want to do this because there's dissatisfaction to begin with. The mind wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't in a state of dissatisfaction. So it's already in a state of suffering. This is the first noble truth. And then it looks around, tries to see what will fix this, hopefully fix it in an ongoing way. And this craving, this craving to get the fix, to get the by trying to control immediate experience, well, that would be the second noble truth, the truth of craving. So then this leads us to consider the role of non-clinging or letting go or surrender in our understanding and uh, in our practices here. When I said earlier, trying hard, making effort has to be kind of nuanced because we have a lot of associations involved with, with those words. There are a lot of associations involved with the words letting go and surrender. Or maybe it's just me. So... When I first started hearing these words in Dharma circles, I have to say, I felt considerable aversion. And to me, it sounded a lot like um, giving up 
for uh, getting rolled over, becoming you know, defeated by things, becoming some sort of uh, passive blob of a person that just let life run all over them and you know, maybe weakness and inability to take action, uh, maybe lacking in courage and initiative. So now you know all about my conditioning, right? Right? Could you guess that I was raised in a military family from what I just said about (laughs) surrender? (laughs) We don't surrender in my family. Okay. So as I gradually came to understand, this isn't what was meant. So when I finally figured it out, after having exhausted all alternatives to it, try, try, try the resist and conquer approach, or the uh, you know attack and impose approach. It took me a while to to understand that this letting go was talking about the release of futile resistance to things as they actually were and were manifesting. So it meant opening up to what was actually happening in the present. In other words, moving into receptivity, connected receptivity, and allowing things to move as they were going to anyway. In other words, allowing impermanence to express itself as it was going to anyway and then acting in a way that was sensitively connected to that and wise. So when we're operating from this place of letting go in practice, then we're operating from the base of clear seeing and not from specific preferences that we might have that are at variance with what's actually happening. So it means we're taking the Dharma, the truth of things as they are, how they are, how they are, the three characteristics, as the foundation for our understanding about the nature of things, rather than acting from conditioned desires. Which is another way of saying it's moving away from a pattern of resistance to reality to a balanced opening to it a sensing of the grain of things moment by moment as things present themselves and then going from there. And this whole process that we're doing, if, if you really look at it, we're turning the mind again and again to the what's actually happening, what's actually happening, what's actually happening in the simplest possible way in the present. So what is it that we need to let go of? Well, basically suffering. That's the main thing. And we could say that that suffering is the painful and futile attempt to control, fabricate, avoid, and pursue that's operant 
on the subtle and obvious levels of the mind. And we start to let go of suffering by coming in touch with delusion and beginning to understand it. This delusion that causes craving for things to be a way that they can't be in the present moment. Which is another way of saying, to loop this back to an earlier piece in the talk, we get clearer about what our span of control is. We get clearer about what we actually control and what we don't. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, is often quoted as saying, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go completely, dot, dot, dot. But it's really a big jump to let go completely. Have you noticed this? To just open and accept whatever it is and just go for the ride whatever it is, treating everything in the same way no matter what it is. You know, we have a deep, perhaps even instinctual clutching that makes it difficult to surrender in this kind of way. Even when we want to, even when we can see the wisdom of it, our conditioned habits of mind, of gripping and holding on, are strong. So earlier I talked about some of the biological underpinnings of our preference for pleasure and the way intermittent reinforcement kind of addicts us almost to seeking this all the time. But there's a whole cultural piece to this as well that plays into it. And of course, we all grow up within a culture or cultures, whether they're family cultures or community cultures or national cultures or uh, Western cultures. And so when we come to the Dharma, a lot of our orientation to things, including the task at hand here, is very much influenced by this cultural overlay that we have. We come with a set of existing views and assumptions and beliefs, and these are often unseen, but they're our basic framework for understanding the world. And it These form the view with which we approach things, including learning and practicing the Dharma. So we have our individual views, but they're not as individual as we may think. So if we were going to look at some of the cultural views that are present in Western culture, which most of us participate in, even if we may not have been born in Western culture. We would say these include a consumer orientation towards experience, a desire to enhance the egoic self-sense, 
and the assumption that pleasant is the most reliable and important measure of the value of experience. So this is part of our set of assumptions and how we go about thinking and proceeding with things. And they're often in play when we're doing our dharma explorations as well, our dharma practice. So we're dragging this set of assumptions along with us when we sit down on the cushion. So here we get to a point of fundamental contradiction between those cultural views and the view of intention and the understanding held within the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's own teachings. Here is where we have issues. So if you looked at how wise intention is, it's really very different from the the cultural view. So wise intention talks about renunciation, metta, loving-kindness, and karuna, compassion. In other words, you could phrase this as letting go of the consumeristic desire to get something as a primary motivation, letting go of placing the egoic self-sense at the center of things, and being willing to move towards unpleasant suffering with the desire to relieve it being willing to let it register out of compassion. So these are the intentions that we're cultivating in Dharma practice. So if these aren't polar opposites to the cultural views, they're at least at right angles. So the implication of this is we need to understand that we're going to have to approach things in a different way than is habitual. Our habitual way of just gliding with our conditioning is going to be confronted when we sit down and try to follow the relatively simple instructions that are given as part of the meditation. We're going to have this overview of this other stuff that can get layered on top of it. It can be really helpful to realize that we're being called on to do something that is not habitual, that's really upstream from our existing conditioning. It can reduce the amount of wasted motion in practice once you realize, oh, okay, this is different. This is different in in important ways. Let me me try to remember how how it's different, what the practice rules are. Because in early stages of this, we need to rely on the practice rules and the practice instructions to help keep our mind from just slipping back into the rut of doing what it generally does. So let's look at some places where letting go could be possible, where it might be able to uh, be possible to see the holding and resistance and begin to release it. 
So if we're working with recognizing and letting go of wanting something different, which is craving and aversion, we realize we want something to be different. We're recognizing it. Now we're trying to let go of that. that. We would have to be willing to come into the here and now regardless of what's happening. In other words, we're not picking and choosing depending on whether we like it or whether we don't like it. We're willing to be here and now regardless of what's happening. We're not letting that pleasant, unpleasant valence of things sway our willingness to be present and interested and open to what's happening. We can also undercut the tendency of mind by accepting whatever is arising in experience. Just have the whatever mind, whatever, whatever, which is a little different from whatever, (laughs) whatever. No, it's whatever. Opening to things as they are without trying to edit them. Like, I, I want to get a little more of this. I want a little more of that. I want to turn up this knob. I want to turn down that knob. I want to play around with the imaginary controls in my head to, you know, get it the way I want. I want this station. I don't want that station. We could work with recognizing and letting go of expectations. This is about, of course, thinking and wanting something that's preferred or predictable. So letting go of expectations. Boy, expectations on retreat can be seductive, can't they? Such a uh, source of suffering. Whether they're trying to re-experience or recapture some state that you had on retreat that one time when the concentration was like this and the body felt like that. Or whether it's the expectation that whatever was experienced in the previous sitting is going to be something that will be experienced in the next sitting, whether... And that could be a wanting or it could be a fear that it's going to happen again. So letting go of expectations. We could work with that by becoming aware of desires and wants that are at variance with what's actually present. So you actually see the wanting of something different. And you open to that desire as an object of meditation. Oh, there's the wanting. Or there's the not wanting. You could practice in an open-ended and allowing way and 
just allowing what's there, allowing whatever is going to happen, whatever is there. Notice when there's an anticipation of familiarity. Have you had the experience of coming in and maybe one session or for a period of time the breath feels a certain way and then some next sitting you come in and you sit down and you turn to the breath and it's different. Maybe it's not there at all. Maybe there's restlessness. It's like the mind thinks, oh, I had it. I had it. I had it down and now I lost it. (laughs) The expectation of, like, it's going to keep being the way that it was or how it's been. You could notice when the desire or tendency to control or edit or direct is happening. See the arising of the desire to control. You can sometimes see that when there's a lot of eyeing going on in the mind. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. Or maybe sometimes it's like, I did this, and I'm going to do that, and I did this, and then that, and then that, and then that. Did you really, or did it just happen with an eye sense along with it? So this desire or tendency to control and edit and direct, you can open to that as a meditation object too and just name it. Oh, this is wanting to control or controlling. This is directing. this is trying to modify the experience that's present here now. You could work with letting go of a fixed self-view, the arising of the sense of solid state me that's either uh, master control Or it's a bad master control that's kind of shortened out. You ever have that experience where you think you should be in control, but what's happening isn't what you think should be happening. So then the mind kind of turns back on itself and it kind of gets angry or disappointed or all hurt because it isn't, happening the way that it should be happening because you should be able to control it because you're in control. (laughs) Or you would be if you knew what you were doing and it's not working and so you're screwed up, screwed up, hopeless yogi. Anybody's mind ever do that with (laughs) stuff? It's not working. (laughs) So anyway... That's some of the dukkha bound up in fixed self-view. So you can work with this by noticing when things are experienced in relationship to me, especially when there's a desire to change them to be as wanted. It's my this, it's my that, it's my 
sadness, it's my concentration, it's my uh, discouragement, it's my sleepiness, it's my restlessness, it's my anger. You could also notice when there's a feeling of a threatened self which needs to be protected and or which needs to control moment to moment. Oh, this emotional state has arisen. Oh, I I can't take it. I can't open to this. I can't feel this. It's interesting. It shows the inconsistency of this view of self that we have, right? On one hand, we kind of think of it more like master control. But on the other hand, we experience it as kind of easily threatened. So is it in control or isn't it in control? And we can get into this this spiral of, well... It's just that it's not a good master control. (laughs) There's something wrong with me. I'm not able to control. No, it's that you, you can't control. Nobody can control. So notice when it starts to feel like there's something wrong with me because I can't control. That's when you know if there's a fixed self view there going on. And then you can make these and other manifestations of a self-sense into an object of meditation when they arise. Now, here's an interesting thing about the self-sense. Some people have the idea that this practice is all about getting rid of the self getting rid of the egoic sense or the sense of individuality or something. Like there's something about this that is intended to directly eliminate this and that shouldn't be there. That's a view. Okay. Why isn't it possible just to say, oh, selfing is here, selfing is happening. Oh, at this moment, there's the arising of a sense of a solid self. Oh, it's strong. And how do I know it? Well, there's thoughts of a particular type. Thoughts of a particular type. There's usually a lot of comparing mind going on there. Have you ever noticed that the, the, one of the most solid uh, arisings of the self-sense takes place in comparison to others? That tendency of mind, oh, she's so peaceful. <laughs> Whereas I, I, <laughs> I am such a mess. <laughs> I am hopeless, right? Or maybe it comes up the other way. Maybe it comes up like, oh, 
she's moving so fast. No tranquility. (laughs) Not like me. (laughs) My mind is like a placid lake. (laughs) Clear all the way to the bottom. You ever notice how fast the mind can kind of go from one one to another? From the, I'm, I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm doing really good, I'm hopeless, I'm... Well, all different mind states associated with the arising, but there's very often comparison. Sometimes it's a comparison back in time, how I was before, something that happened before, when I was doing it right or I was doing it wrong and how it is now or maybe there's some hope for the future and how I am going to be in the future when it's like that. It's really interesting to say. Really interesting to say. And you'll see very often, this is not always the case, but very often that self-sense is the strongest when there's suffering. See, you could do a Kalesa investigation right at the point of the arising of a very strong and rigid sense of self. And see which version you've got this time. Is it the, the superior feeling self or is it the inferior feeling self or is it the Just look. So another way of letting go that we can work is letting go of any unskillful desire to be free from desire. That sounds like a double backflip off the diving board, doesn't it? to be letting go of any unskillful desire to be free from desire. And it is a paradoxical thing that the very act of trying to be liberate the mind from craving can become a kind of stumbling block to actually finding freedom of mind. But it's true that if we're unable or unwilling to acknowledge in a very neutral kind of -of matter-of-fact way that craving, in fact, is present. When it's present, we move away from liberation. We actually move away from it. It's not that the Buddha said that craving is bad. You know, like if you have craving, it's bad. He said when craving is present and it's not seen, there's suffering. That's a different statement. It's not a badness statement. It's a pointing out of suffering in the interest of helping mind come out of delusion and understanding how suffering is being created. So trying to get rid of craving by an act of will is generally pretty futile. And this is one of the things that the Buddha found out through his period of this extreme asceticism that he had. 
So reacting to the pain of craving with craving for its departure is a little bit like trying to get rid of a hangover by having a great big old drink. There's a a little temporary relief there, but really it just seems to deepen the cycle. So the basic teaching is that, yes, we need to let go of craving, but the letting go of craving has to do through the arising of wisdom into the mind. And this wisdom is seeing into how things are and how things work together. It's more a process of learning how to see, connect, relax, and open to a fuller and fuller range of the potential things that we can experience as human beings. By taking our seat, establishing this view of present moment, mindful awareness with close connected uh, noticing, and then allowing everything to arise just the way it is within the mind stream and just continually noticing it. The techniques and all the rest of it are just aids and supports to help establish this view of the mind stream. And by the mind stream, I mean this continual arising, this river of arising sensations of the, the body at the five sense doors and arising of what arises at the mind door. Again, all of these things flowing continuously in the present in an ongoing way, hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, intending, remembering, anticipating, emotions, Vedana, all of it, one thing after another, after another, after another, after another, being known in the present. And the mind starts to understand it's a river. It's not solid. It's a river that has its own lawful nature. We're not in charge of it. We don't need to be in charge of it. We've never been in charge of it. The clarification about the span of control, where we have influence and where we have control gets much, much clearer. And the mind lets go through understanding. It starts to see what happens when it fights with things, when it identifies with things, when it tightens around things, when it grabs for things, when it pushes things away, when it becomes disconnected, and it starts to see that's all dysfunctional. It's not that it's bad, it's just suffering. It's wasted motion. It's beside the point. It's a lot of trying for nothing. It's an incredible expenditure of energy to try to do something that's beyond our ability to do. We start to see where really is the place of power. Where is the place of wise relationship? Oh, it's right here. The mind gets much more clear about what it can do, what it needs to do, what is wise to do, what is futile to attempt, what is beside the point, What is doomed to failure? What is skillful? 
all through just taking the seat, staying continuous, watching moment by moment this stream of arising experience. And part of the arising experience that we're seeing is our own conditioning arising in the mind, trying to get in there and do stuff. So everything that you've been through here so far, all of it, hasn't been wasted at all. If you're paying attention, you're, you're seeing your own conditioning come into play, getting in there, trying to get certain things, trying to make things happen, getting frustrated with what's actually happening, pushing and pulling, you know, the bumper cars of the mind. You're seeing it all. You're starting to see from the inside what the mind does. Oh, and the mind on a very intuitive level is starting to understand what's going on. It's starting to make its own discernments, often non-verbal discernments at this point, about what's skillful and what isn't skillful. How do you know? Are you suffering? Every time suffering arises, that's, that's the learning lab right there. That means, in one way or another, that there's some attempt to control something that's being experienced where you don't have the span of control to do it. That's what that means. So these experiences, these cycles of suffering that we have are very, very useful to us. This is where we start to see it and where the mind starts to understand through this direct observation, this direct connected knowing. Oh, okay, well, maybe I should just accept it. Last option, having (laughs) exhausted all others. Well, maybe I should just allow it. Maybe I should just accept it. Oh, okay. But I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Maybe I should just accept I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Oh, that's the arising experience. This is the I don't like it mind. Right? There's nothing that's not inside of this. When you remember the view and take your seat, there's nothing that you can experience here that is not inside of this process. It's all right. The mind is learning from all of it if it's attending to what's going on. So when this attending happens consistently and at deep levels of the body and mind, this delusion cluster that we have that I've talked about tonight, this confusion about the span of control and desire to run things, relaxes and it releases itself. It releases itself. And you know, the I that was in there wanting to get rid of things, maybe wanting to get rid of itself. That's not what causes this release to happen. The master control or imaginary master control, that's not what does this. It's not running the show. But rather it's a part 
of what must be seen and understood as just another conditioned arising in order for this unbinding of mind to happen. So we can let go of complexification. We can actually do a lot less work. Hmm, that's a relief. But you got to have go along with it mind. You got to have the mind that allows, connects and allows, connects and allows, connects and allows the reaction to what's being known, connects and allows, just allows it. So now I've told you the secret. Okay, so when you find yourself getting over-involved with the gripping, the directing, the controlling, the picking and choosing and all the rest of that, just let yourself remember our friends the mice and the mouse desire to get the pellets and how hard they work for intermittent reinforcement. And allow yourself to sit back and just take what you're getting. It's really better that way. (laughs) Okay, so let's just sit for a minute. May we let go into the wisdom of great acceptance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.